Good morning. I'm reading from Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The word of the Lord. Lord, uh, we do pray for our, our technical difficulties here and even our, our own hearts, our spiritual difficulties perhaps to uh, at times be open to what your word has to say, uh, especially on a difficult uh, passage like this. Uh, soften us and uh, open us to trust and to hear you. Uh, we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, at a time uh, when in the news there are so many um, awful funeral processions in the Middle East, it seems uh, almost inappropriate to be preaching on marriage uh, and yet in some maybe deeper way, it's uh, a topic we really need right now uh, to be looking toward how much God loves us. Uh, that is, I think, at the heart of marriage throughout the Bible and why it's a relevant topic, even if you are single, uh, divorced, um, and married, that God is most revealing his love for us from start to finish with Adam and Eve, the Song of Solomon, and even concluding with the, the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, uh, the first miracle of Jesus at Cana. You can't get away from marriage because in it you can't get away from our desire to be loved deeply uh, and to be known and to be accepted. And that is what God really deeply wants for us. So the topic, whether we're married or single, is incredibly relevant and pervasive in scripture. Um, this passage is hard on a couple levels. Um, technically it's hard because uh, there's a metaphor employed that can easily be misunderstood. And we're gonna get into that. And personally it's hard because no relationship, whether it's our parents' marriage or our own, has more power to deeply hurt us than marriage. And so if you're coming to this passage 
um, and feeling yourself starting to shut down uh, or to be angry, uh, that is to be expected. And so what I want to do is kind of be upfront about some of the abuses of it in its time in Ephesus, in our time, and try to offer a different view of marriage that I think this passage really gives us. Uh, for this passage itself has been used to portray women uh, as inferior to men, both in the time of Paul's writing and even in our own day. So I want to go back before we get into this passage and look at the deeper, older passages in Genesis, briefly, that remind us that's not the case, okay? We've covered these before. Eric has, uh, in this series, embodied. And the first of those is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, not just to Adam, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky and over everything, every living creature that moves on the ground. So just from the beginning, as image bearers of God, central to their identity, both men and women are given authority to rule. That's really powerful. So any idea of marriage or gender that diminishes a woman's identity to rule, to have authority, diminishes her as an image bearer of God. That's really important to keep in mind. The next is Genesis 1.18. The other problem, if you diminish her authority to rule with the man, is you put the man in a precarious situation. When God said, it is not good for man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for, for him. The not goodness, after he's just said everything is very good, is that when either of us as men and women are alone, it is a field ripe for anxiety and to fall prey to temptation. If we are not together in heart, we face real enemies alone in the world. Whether it be spiritual, whether it be our own view of ourself, it's a very precarious place to be. So he gives her an ezer kenegdo in the Hebrew. That word ezer that is translated helper is often thought in some circles as a subservient helper someone less than, and yet that is not how it is used throughout the Old Testament. Moses, in Exodus 18.4, names one of his sons Eliezer, Eliezer. And you read there, and the other son was named Eliezer, for Moses said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Instead of being a weak helper, the woman is given to Adam as God, in a sense, as a strong helper, as one suitable and fit with him to face the enemies, a strong ally, an intimate ally in the world. So 
in any close relationship, but especially in marriage among the most intimate, we need to grasp what marriage teaches us. And that's where we're going in this passage. It teaches us that it's not good to be alone, that we really need allies in this world. And in marriage, we're offered one of the most intimate of those. So let's look at three questions I would just want to take on to better understand this text as we now go into it. Whose model of marriage is Paul addressing? What is Paul saying to wives? And what is he saying to husbands? Whose model is he, is he confronting? The epistles are letters, as you know. We wish we had the letters that they're responding to. We don't. Um, Ephesians is one of those. But what we do know from what Paul says in Ephesians 3.1 is it's written to Gentiles. Okay? Gentile converts to Christianity rather than Jewish converts to Christianity. So what Paul is ministering to and teaching them, in this case on marriage, would be their views from the Greco-Roman culture. And it is most likely that in that culture, the views of Aristotle would be those most influential, the influencer of their time, so to speak, a fourth century philosopher. And as we look at his work briefly, we consider in politics his view of how the, the society can bring about good virtues. He addresses the same three categories that Paul addresses, the same three pairings, husband, wife, master, slave, husband, or father, children, okay? And he addresses those same three. So Paul is, is speaking into that, and that makes sense because as converts from the Greco-Roman world, he would need to address their views. So what does Aristotle have to say that Paul would be addressing? Not good stuff for the view of women <laughs> in authority. You see it there. Uh, the last part of it I'll just read. The female has reason but lacks authority. There's kind of two uh, views by scholars of what he might have meant by that. Neither are good. Either she lacks intelligence or she's so emotional that it gets in the way of her reason. That's the prevailing view. And so they're unfit for authority, not only in the home, but in all spheres of life. So sadly and tragically, uh, forms of this are still prevalent uh, in churches we would call Churches that are seeking to be faithful biblically. Churches that are trying to, in good conscience, interpret the scriptures. There are difficult passages like this and uh, 1 Timothy 2 that are hard to grasp. We don't have time to go into that one, but that passage and this are often anchor passages to try and defend a view that even if we say they're equal, they have different roles. And what I want to uh, push back on that a little bit is when the roles being different uh, limit authority to women, that that is something not supported by the bigger picture in Scripture. And that's something I want us to at least push back on a little bit as we look at this passage, okay? There is a good book, if you'd like to do some more reading on all those passages, called Icons of Christ, uh, by William Witt. 
But let me come back to this passage and how does Paul begin to address this view of male-only authority? Uh, it's important, let me just step back, it's important as we address these controversial issues to recognize that neither the male nor the female are the ultimate authority in the house of God. It's the word of God. And so each of us has to really wrestle with these in, in matters of faith and conscience. Okay? But how does Paul do that? How does he address this male-only view? In verse 21, he commands all believers, men, women, children, slaves, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the house of God, all are to humbly serve one another out of reverence for Christ. Or it, literally, it's phobos theus, it's out of fear of God. Mutual submission, putting the needs of one another above our own, is the way to please and honor God. Mutual submission, to put the needs of one another above our own, is the way to please and honor God. That's the everybody command that Paul begins with. We cannot understate how subversive that would have been in Greco-Roman culture. Incredibly subversive. It spells the beginning of the end of slavery, for one, and of an authoritarian patriarchal system. And it puts all under the authority and submission to Christ. Incredibly leveling in that way, in a good way. So what is Paul saying to wives? Well, first of all, that he has anything to say to wives is itself incredibly subversive. Aristotle, in his writings, never addresses the woman. He, Paul, does. He treats them as free moral agents who can freely offer their service. It's not out of having to submit, but choosing to serve. So what might, as he speaks to women at this time in history, as they are converts to Christianity, coming out of a Gentile world, what, what might have been tempting the wives in that church? If you look at verse 24, we get a hint. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives should submit to their husbands in everything. A real temptation for the women in Ephesus in this authoritarian patriarchal culture could have been to merely give lip service to their husbands' needs, to serve them not fully from their hearts. Why would that make sense? It would totally make sense. They had been treated as property, as a body to a means of an heir, a male heir. And even if their husband has converted to Christianity, they would have so many memories of being treated as property. And so it would be very easy for them to give lip service, but to not to give their hearts to their husbands. So to wives, Paul gives an empowering command in that fear that they might have, a reasonable fear. 
Wives, in verse 22, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Notice the possessive pronoun, your own husbands. You are not his property. You belong to each other. That's really empowering. Submit yourselves. Again, this is your choice in the Lord. Offer yourself. This could, especially at this time, and even in ours, be easily misconstrued as obey him, obey his desires. And so Paul is really clear in in the second part of that 22b, as you do to the Lord. He is not saying that they are to serve their husbands as their husband pleases, but as it pleases the Lord. It is under the moral authority of Christ, not the sinful whims of the husband. Serving him in his sin does not mean serving his sin. Serving him in his sin does not mean serving his sin. It means being willing to acknowledge it and its consequences. That would be risky. That would be incredibly risky. What if he gets mad and goes back to his old way of thinking? You are my property. So in such a precarious place, Paul gives them motivation that gives them strength. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So at first glance, this kind of gets our hackles up, doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying he's in charge and you're not. But there's two ways to view that word head in the Greek kephale. Head can either mean an authority as in a higher ranking officer, or it can mean source as in the headwaters of the Mississippi or in Minnesota. And there's evidence to believe as Paul modifies this metaphor in the expression that follows that that's exactly what he's saying. How does he do it? Of which he is the savior. The husband is the head of the wife in this way, not as king, but as savior. As savior, what is Christ? He is the source of the church. Here we see a parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam's body is that from which Eve was taken. Adam is her source. Christ's body offered on the cross spiritually is the source, the spring from which the church flows. So he's saying to wives who might be tempted to hold back their hearts, even in confronting their newly converted husbands, about their sin, let alone their needs, he's saying to do that is to to deny a spiritual reality, your unity. You are both a source of life to each other. He, the beginning, you, the body, you two are one, and you are meant to depend and to be blessings to each other. As the spring is a source of life to the river, You are meant to be to each other that. And so if you move away from him with these things, 
you are denying a, a, an essential reality. Christ is the source. Finally, Paul gives to the wives the scope of this service in everything. In verse 24, here's a parallel. In the church, if we hold something back from Christ, what happens in that part of our life? He's saying, don't do that inside your marriage either. In everything, open your hearts to him. Not only to him, but to me. Let me share with you a typical moment uh, of, from my work in counseling. Uh, I have met with women who have both been betrayed and those who have betrayed uh, infidelity uh, inside their marriage. And, and here's like a typical conversation with one who had been betrayed by her husband. And it's an example to you of how they are being called to bring everything in their hearts to God and to even their husband. She says, as I learn more and more of my husband's infidelity, I feel a pit in my stomach. That sounds like hurt, which makes sense. What do you do with that feeling? I think to myself, I'm right. I should have left it. Move past this. I say, that sounds right. And yet I wonder if you're skipping over something. What do you mean? I wonder if you're skipping over your hurt. Can we go back to that pit in your stomach? Her body was telling her something with that pit, something important. What do you feel as you go back to that pit? Her tears begin to come. I see your eyes welling up. What do your tears have to say? Why was I not enough? The tears really start to come. Can we, can you invite, she's a believer, can you invite the Lord into that? She begins to breathe slower. What's he saying to you? I am enough. I have died for you. I will never leave you. The pit has melted. The fear that she is not enough has gone away. She's brought it to him. Now that's a broken situation inside a marriage that's still together. The same can be true. When we bring to our spouse, we bring to our trusted others the things that are going on in our heart rather than take them on ourselves. We avoid the very danger of being left in the lies that the enemy puts in the pit of our stomach and they rise up to accuse us. It's not good to be alone.
What is Paul saying to husbands? Verse 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body. This brings us to the question of what might husbands in such a culture, patriarchal, authoritarian culture, what might husbands be tempted to do inside their marriage? The temptation for them is to despise weakness in themselves and in others. How often as men uh, do we despise in ourselves our vulnerable emotions? My fear, my shame, my worry, my doubt, my confusion. And in despising them, not really consider them, not bring them to our wife or to a friend, but instead kind of plow through them, push them down and, and come up with a solution. Okay? So to husbands who are tempted to avoid not only their own hearts, but to bring their hearts to their wives, Paul gives an emotional command. Love your wives. That Paul is even addressing an emotional category with men in a highly stoic culture that sees reason as king and emotion as something inferior is itself a revolution. He's challenging the notion that emotions are inferior. And he's saying that they are important. They are, as a radar, is important in time of war to warn of an enemy's coming, to warn that something is happening inside you. You need to pay attention. He's saying, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, if there's any doubt about mutual submission, it's hard to hold on to it when we read these words. Christ who submitted his body unto death for his bride. And husbands are being called to submit ourselves to love them, which is to serve them, even the way Christ did. Paul is careful to use this language that can be heard in this culture, but beneath it is the clear message. We are serving one another. Rather than rule her, he is to serve her in love in all her needs, especially her need to know his heart. I often talk with, our, with couples about the book, Where's Waldo? Do you remember those crazy books? And the kids were always so happy when they finally found Waldo in the massive picture. And marriage is kind of like that that you're not really happy until you know where the heart of your spouse is toward you. You're kind of anxious until you find Waldo. And so in marriage, sharing the heart fully is commanded of men. That can be scary. That also is a risk. Very scary. What if she does not like what she sees in my heart? So Paul gives a powerful motive to men in a very lengthy section, lengthy and beautiful section here that I'll just touch on in verses 26 to 33. 
That this section is longer does not mean less is said to the wife, for in both sections, each can read about themselves in relation to Christ. For both are his bride. What husbands and wives are given as the motive for the mutual love and service reaches deeply into the hearts, the lies that we have. Paul's motive for loving our spouse is not merely the example of Christ in his death, but the effectiveness of it. What's the effect? The whole thing is laid out in that beautiful uh, analogy of the bride. She is made holy. As we enter into Christ's body by faith on the cross, he, in his holiness, gives us that. That we are cleansed not only underneath as the body might, as the bride might bathe before she puts on the gown, but we are clothed on the outside as well. We are, we are cleansed from within by his blood and the guilt that lies there, and we are covered from shame on the outside by his life and his call to love. That's really important. That essentially as the bride of Christ, we are set free from guilt and shame to go down the aisle, to love and be loved in relationships. That's powerful. That answers some of our deepest fears. So much of this series has taken us back to our bodies. In counseling, we pay a lot of attention to body language. One of the things we really pay attention to is eye, eye contact. That when a husband and wife on the couch are looking away from each other, even when they're speaking, kind of looking up and thinking and speaking, but not looking at each other, something's being missed. They might be stuck in their fears. And without eye contact, they get no reassurance that they're loved. They're also not revealing directly what's happening inside their heart to one another. This whole image of hiding from each other uh, is and was in the film Goodwill Hunting uh, very powerfully demonstrated. Some of you may not remember it, but it was in 98 that it came out. And I want to take you back to the scene uh, as part of our wrap up here. So Will is a young man who has had a rough time in life. He's a construction worker. And he meets Skylar at a pub in Cambridge. She's like a senior pre-med student at Harvard. Uh, he's so glad he got her phone number. He calls her up, they begin to date. And he, they fall in love. So there's a scene uh, in her dorm where he, she's scratching his back and everything's going great until she makes her desires known and it scares the living daylights out of Will. I want you to come to California with me. 
she's going to graduate and go to Stanford for med school. What did you say? I want you to come to California with me. How do you know? I just know. But how do you know? I feel it. That's a really serious thing. Because we could get to California and you could find out things about me and you wouldn't have a take back. A take back? What's a take back? I just want you to come to California with me. Skylar is so confused at this point. Because Will is not willing to look at her and say, into her eyes, I am really afraid that I am unworthy of your love. In the truth of what Paul is giving us here, Christ is looking us in the eye and saying to us, I have made you worthy. And I can't wait to see you at the wedding. Our wedding. For now, I want you to love one another. For you are secure in my covenant. You are secure in my love. I have given my body for you. Give your body for one another. For I love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that in Christ we have a groom who has suffered for us, his bride. Thank you that you've given both men and women the great privilege of serving you and serving one another. For those who have, many of us, suffered be a comfort to us and yet give us courage to continue to love and to be loved for Christ's sake. Amen.